All right, gang. Well, we're about to kick off. It is uh, after I throw this water down. It's just a couple minutes till seven. I want to be faithful with your time. And so we'll start at seven each week and then we'll wrap it up by 8.30. So that's our guarantee to you. I hope that it goes by really quickly to you because you enjoy it. Um, there's some snacks and water back here. Restrooms are over there by the elevator. If you need to get up, grab something to eat, drink, I totally understand that. I'm glad you're here. Um, I know that uh, it can be pretty tempting when the weather's nice and after a long day, you may uh, have the temptation to go, you know what, I'm just going to skip and go home and, and veg. And so I'm glad you're here and that you chose to carve a little time out tonight to make this possible. So my name is Blake Holmes. I have the opportunity to lead the equipping ministry here at Watermark. And uh, this class is cover to cover. I know there's a lot of different things we're offering tonight. Equipped Disciple is over there. So if you happen to be an Equipped Disciple, feel free to sneak on out. We won't make fun of you. So, um, but uh, I want to open this up in a word of prayer. And then, uh, and then we're going to jump in. All right. So let me pray for us. Well, Father in heaven, I want to thank you for the opportunity tonight to gather with uh, friends who want to learn more about your word. And I pray, Lord, that um, you would help us to lay aside all the distractions of uh, today and this week and uh, really take advantage of the time we have together. I pray that you'd open our hearts. I pray, Father, for each one um, who feels intimidated, even just walking in this room tonight and overwhelmed, um, maybe unsure as to whether or not they believe the Bible's worth studying. And uh, I pray, Father, that you would encourage their hearts. I pray, Father, that you would help them to better understand what your word says about who you are and the God of the Bible. I pray, Father, for everyone in here, Lord, who um, maybe uh, has some understanding of, of what your word says but isn't able to see the story as a whole. And I pray, Father, just as Peter says, like newborn babes, Lord, we would long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, that by it we may grow in respect to salvation. So that's our prayer, and we ask for your help tonight. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so um, out of curiosity, be brave, all right? You don't have to be afraid. Why did you sign up for this class? Anybody? All right. Okay, very good. So he said he wants a, uh, a look at the whole Bible, a comprehensive look at the whole. So I saw another hand come up over here. Yes. You came to support him. I like that. Hopefully he's buying dinner. No. <laughs> All right. Anybody else? Why'd you sign up? Time frame? What do you mean by time? Who said that? I'm sorry. Uh, so here you are. Hey, we believe in divine providence, so it must be God's will. All right. What else? Why'd you sign up? Yes, sir. Oh, great. That's great. How many of y'all are on the journey? How many of you know what the journey is? All right. So somewhat. All right. The journey is basically a systematic way to, that we as a church read through Scripture together. And so you can go to jointhejourney.com to learn more about that. And every day there's an email that goes out to you. You can go to the app actually and download that. And you'll see a little devotional written by somebody within our church. And this year 
what we're doing is uh, we're reading the Bible literally from cover to cover, from Genesis through Revelation. And so it's never too late to jump into that. I would encourage you, if you haven't done so, come jump in and I think you'll learn a lot from doing that. I saw a hand over here while you signed up. It was only six weeks long. I love that too. That's, that's good. It's only six weeks long. All right. So how many of you on a scale of one to 10 just uh, would say that you know the Bible really, really well? 10 would be, hey, listen, I grew up going to church. Um, I, I can read the Hebrew and the Old Testament, Greek, the New Testament. I, I do my quiet times in Leviticus, okay? And, and then a, a one is, you know, I was really, I'm dragged here. I'm not excited about this. I don't know anything. I don't know uh, that there's an Old Testament or a New Testament, but at least I'm curious enough to come and ask questions. All right, so one to three. Now let's start the other way. Ten to seven, all right? Raise your hand. All right? Love it. Couple? Few? That's good. All right? Uh, six to four. Raise your hand. All right? That's good. And then three to one. Perfect. Well, here's what I want to tell you. Okay? Here's what I want to tell you. We are now going to challenge all of our 10 to 7s by giving them a quiz. Isn't that great? Don't y'all like that? If you're a 1 to a 3, okay, you don't even have to take this thing. But if you're a 10 to a 7, you got to take it because you just told the whole class, I'm a 10 to a 7. So here we go. You ready? Take out a piece of paper, a pencil. We're not going to share the answers with anybody or embarrass you. Uh, I hear clicking, but I do not see the screen moving. There we go. Pop quiz. Here you go. You didn't think you have to do this tonight, but yes, you do. Ready? So don't answer out loud. Just take a few minutes. If you're anywhere on the scale, you can try this. You might know it better than you think. But especially if you're a 10 to 7, you have to. All right? How are we doing so far? Quick, easy, already done. All you 10 to 7s, you should be done. 1 to 3s, relax. It's all good. All good. I pick on the 10 to 7s, never the 1 to 3s. All right, ready for the next page? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Page 2, people, come on. There we go.
All right, you ready? You got it? All right, let's go back and see how you did. Okay. My 10 to 7s, you can help me answer. How many books are in the Old Testament? 39, well done. Now let me tell everybody else how you remember that. How many letters are in the word old? Three. How many letters are in the word testament? Trust me, there are nine. 39. All right? So now you got it. You'll never forget it. There are three letters in the word old, nine letters in the word testament, 39. So you have to do stuff like this. This is how I got through college. All right? Learning things like this. All right. Uh, where is the story of Abraham found? Genesis. Genesis. What three things did God promise Abraham? Land, children, and a blessing. That's exactly right. Who led the people out of Egypt? Moses. What were the names of the two spies who demonstrated faith after spying out the promised land? Caleb and Joshua. Well done, friends. Well done. We're cruising along. Up. Didn't want to go there. All right. Who sheltered the spies sent into Jericho? Rahab. Where is the story of Samson found? Judges. Who were the three kings of the united Israel? Saul, David, and Solomon. Where is the Davidic covenant found? Anyone? No? 2 Samuel 7. That's right. What country overthrew Israel? No? Assyria? What country overthrew Judah? Babylon. That's right. Well done. That's really well done. All right. So let's just go outside and enjoy the good weather, right, too? No, here's, here's what I Let me ask you this. We'll take this... Little question again, all right? How many of you would place yourself at 7 or 10 now? All right, very good. All right, how many of you uh, 6 to 4, holding steady? All right, and still 1 to 3. All right, 1 to 3. Here's my hope and my goal, okay? I grew up in a church, gang, where, unfortunately, I did not learn a lot about my Bible. Now, that may have been because... I just was not paying attention. I I grant you that. Or it may have been where no one really ever sat down and told me the story of the Bible. I I never really had someone help me understand how the Bible is all one book. It is 66 books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new, all written, okay, with one primary theme, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And it wasn't until I got a little older that someone helped me see this, that every story in the Old Testament points to Christ, and everything in the New Testament looks to Christ. And I saw that this book, okay, really is, although made of 66 books, really has one theme and is about one central person, Jesus Christ. One person said this, and I like this quote, in answering what is the Bible. This is how he answered it. The Bible contains the mind of God, 
the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. Uh, We're missing a slide, but that's okay. It contains the light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given to you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred context. That's one of those things that you read and you go, I wish I wrote that. I wish I wrote that. I'm, I'm not... Um, musically talented at all, okay? But there are times when I've been invited to a symphony, right? And I go and I hear how all of those different instruments, when they are played together, make incredible music. And there's a conductor up there and he's leading this side over here and then leading this side over here. And then those in front of him playing all, you got the cello, the violin, you know, the tuba, whatever, all these different instruments are all playing, right? And there's a conductor right there in the middle. And that's how scripture's put together. You got the violins playing over here, right? You got the cello over here, the bass over there, whatever it is. Help me out. What else would be there? Woodwind. Thank you. Woodwind. I looked at him. He's a musician. I mean, come on. Um, But you have all these instruments, gang, but you have one conductor. And that's what scripture does. Scripture is, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be thoroughly or adequately equipped for every good work. My hope in our time together over these next several weeks, okay, is that you're going to walk, walk out of here with a greater confidence in the truth of God's word. And you're not going to be overwhelmed by the story, but you're going to be able to do exactly what our friend over here said. Hey, I hope to put the story, the Bible together. And all of you who are ones and threes, I promise that is going to go way up when we're done. It's going to go way up. All right. My hope is you're going to walk out of here and go, hey, I finally understand how the story is put together. I have a little video I want you to watch. Let's take a second to do that. Sixty-six books, dozens of authors, a holy canon thousands of years in the making. Consider the works, accounts of history and law, prophecy and poetry, verses of wisdom and letters from friends. Now, look again. What do you see? Behind the fallen creation, where the first son Adam led all humanity astray, there is the faithful son, a new Adam, who fulfills the promise and crushes the serpent's head. In the waters of the flood, just as God used Noah to save his family from judgment, 
there is a greater vessel by which all God's children are saved. On the altar of desperation, just as Isaac asked his father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice, comes the answer from the wilderness, behold the lamb. For a thirsty people, just as Moses struck the rock in the wilderness, there is a rock whose living water satisfies forever. In the battle against Goliath, where an unlikely king became a champion for his people, we see the shadow of a greater king who defeats sin and death to claim our victory. In the long exile of a people, Isaiah's eyes were opened to a vision of salvation and the eternal journey of God's people to the Promised Land. Until finally, in humble manger lay the hope of the world, the King who reigns from a throne of straw to Calvary's cross to the deathless tomb of eternal Easter. Every story casts his shadow, every word Every verse bears his testimony. The Holy Messiah, Jesus Christ, eternal King. This is the Gospel Project. Do I hear that? I love that. Hey, every story, right, whispers his name. And so the Bible is written by about 40 different authors over a time period of 1,500 years. And yet it has that one theme. It all points to Christ. For many of us, Perhaps if, if you grew up in church, you heard a bunch of Bible stories, and the Bible's like a puzzle. You, you know maybe of Moses, you've heard of the Exodus, you maybe have heard of Samson or heard of Paul, you maybe have heard of Elijah or, or Abraham, but you don't know who comes first or, um, or what they did in their life or how they're connected. And so it's, it's like you have a bunch of pieces on the table of the puzzle, Right? But what's the first thing you need to do if you want to build a puzzle? Not a trick question. What's the first thing you want to do? Okay, you want to know what the big picture is, certainly. Okay, it helps. That's what you want to do, right? You want to put the big picture here and go, all right, kids. All right, I've got four kids. First thing I want to do is, hey, guys, you got to look at this, right? And they're focused on all the pieces, right? And then what's the next thing you want to do? I'm sorry? All right, you want to spread the pieces out. And what's the first thing you're going to start to build? The borders. That's exactly right. You're going, to want to, you're going to want to build the borders first. You want to have the edges, and they're easy to pick out. It's amazing to me how many people, what they do is, when they come to the Bible, they'll maybe open up the Bible. It's almost like superstition. They'll open up the Bible, you know, just wherever it is, you know, they can open it, and then they just start reading, hoping that God will bless their understanding of, what, of what's written there. And, and that's, that's kind of like walking into a movie theater in the, in the middle of a movie and just kind of going, I hope I understand this. This is going to be great. And you don't recognize that there's a context to every movie and every story. And when we read the Bible and we see that it's a bunch of fragmented pieces and we don't know how they relate and we don't understand how they fit together to tell us the big story, it becomes very overwhelming. So the first thing you have to do is you have to build a border. And for, um, throughout, from Genesis through Revelation over these next several weeks, we are going to give you the border and show you the big picture. We don't, we don't have time to, to go into some of the... Uh, more specific stories, 
You know, I often tell people, if you're new to Dallas and you just arrived on a plane from DFW and you were maybe wanting to buy a house here, there's several ways in which I could show you the Metroplex. We can look at a map, right? I, I could get in a car with you and drive you around. You could Uber wherever you wanted to, right? You could take a helicopter tour. You could take a bike tour or you could walk, right? And, and, but if we walked, we're not going to see very much. And sometimes some of us maybe have grown up in church for a long time. We've never opened up, let's say, the minor prophets. We've never read Joshua. We've never read Leviticus. We've stayed right there in Psalms and Proverbs and Philippians, right? Because those are the, the meaning is right there on the surface. It's easier to understand. And so we're familiar with those pieces, but we don't see how it fits the whole. And what I want to do is I want to give you a helicopter tour. I want to help you see the big picture, to use the other metaphor, of the Bible. See how it's put together, right? And I'm not going to assume you know anything. I'm going to assume that you've never read the Bible, then you don't know anything about it. So big picture wise, as I've said, the Bible's broken up into two parts. You have the Old Testament and the New Testament. Basically, the time before Christ lived, the Old Testament, and then the New Testament, the time of Christ, his life, and following. You have 39 books in the Old and 27 books in the New. Now, the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, right, begins with creation, and it speaks of God's people known as the Jewish people. This starts with the call of Abraham, which we'll get to in the book of Genesis. It's written by roughly 28 different authors and covers a time period of over 2,000 years. It's a long time. Whereas the New Testament begins with the birth of Christ and speaks of his life and his ministry It's written by nine different authors and covers a time period of less than 100 years. If you were to look at the Old Testament, you'd see that there's three sections. There's 17 historical books, five poetical books, and 17 prophetical books. So it goes 17, 5, 17. So you have 39 books in the Old Testament. And then you have three categories. So if you're, gonna, if you're a librarian and you want to group the books, you're going to go, okay, here are all my history books. Here are all my poetical books. And here are all my prophetical books. So it goes 17, 5, 17. The historical books are these, Genesis through Esther. So if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn to the table of contents and draw a line under Esther. Okay, those first 17 books and just bracket those and just write historical. And then you have the first five books are known as the law or the Pentateuch, which just is the first five books written by Moses. So depending on who you speak to, okay, your Jewish friend or your church going friend, It's going to be referred to as the law or the Pentateuch or the Torah. Those are the first five books in the Old Testament, first five historical books. Now, what I want to show you is, so this isn't so overwhelming, is that you really don't even need to know all um, 39 books in the Old Testament to understand the story. You need to know 11 books. So I just reduced your reading by a lot, all right? 
you need to know 11 books. And why do I say that? Because yes, there are 17 historical books. 17 books tell the story of the Old Testament. But six of those are books that repeat or highlight the story that has already been told in the other 11. Does that make sense? So you have 17 historical books. The ones that are colored here, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, Ezra, and Nehemiah, I would just put a little highlight by those in the Old Testament, in, in your table of contents. Because those are the 11, what I call, primary historical books. If you go to some theologian or, and you say, hey, what are the primary historical books? They're not going to understand what you mean. This is a word I've used. Okay, and the reason why I call them primary is because they move the chronology along within the story of the Old Testament. If you just read those, then you would see how the story is told. Following the historical books, you have five poetical books. That's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. So the first 17, those are historical Those historical figures, they wrote music. They wrote poetry. These are the books they wrote, okay? And then you have 17 prophetical books. And those 17 are broken down. The first five are known as the major prophets. And then you've got 12 um, minor prophets. Now, they're referred to as major prophets simply because they're longer. It's not because they're more important. It's not because their message is more relevant. They're, told, they're called major prophets simply because they're longer. Now, I want to break this down even more for you. This, what I'm telling you, we're building the, we're building the border of the puzzle right now, okay? I'm helping you understand how the metroplexes, how it's all put together, what neighborhoods are where. And as we go along, I'm going to remind you of these things over and over and over again. So if you're not catching it right now, don't panic, okay? The major and minor prophets are then even broken down more based upon when they wrote. There's a time in Israel's history that is known as the exile, when they are taken captive, they're overthrown by their enemies. And so the prophets wrote to warn God's people of this coming judgment. So some of the prophets are known as pre-exilic prophets, meaning before the exile. Some are known as the exilic prophets. They wrote to encourage and remind the people of God of God's promises during the time of the exile. And then you have post-exilic prophets. God eventually allowed his people to return home. And so it was time after the exile, these prophets wrote. So the story of the Old Testament is a little overwhelming when you look at it, when you have 39 books. But when you recognize it's like a library, it's a collection of books, and you have 17 historical, five poetical, and 17 prophetical books. And then of those historical books, you have 11 primary Everything else is color. It takes a black and white TV, right? And everything else makes it color. So let me show it to you another way. If you were to take the primary historical books 
and lay them across the page like I have here. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua. You see, you have a one, two, three, and four right there. So those are the ones that tell the story. And then you have the secondary historical books on top. Leviticus highlights the story that is told in Exodus. Everybody with me? Leviticus is always that book you get to, right? Every January, you're excited about reading the Bible all the way through. Your friend convinces you, we're going to do it this year. You double down. You're feeling awesome right up to February. You've hit Genesis. You've hit Exodus. You're cruising. You get to Leviticus, and what happens? You're done, right? That's Leviticus, right? And I'll tell you why you're done when we get there here in a little while and why it can be confusing to us, but it doesn't need to be that way. It is a great book that highlights the promises of God and shows us as a shadow of our Savior who is to come and what we're going to celebrate on, on Friday and Easter. But so Leviticus adds color to Exodus. Deuteronomy adds color to what's being told in the book of Numbers. Now you look at Job right there and you're like, now why is Job there? Well, many people believe Job was actually the first book of the Bible ever written. Job was probably lived during the time of, the, of, uh, of Abraham and the patriarchs. And so contextually, it's a poetical book. It doesn't move the chronology along. And so, but his, his historical context is during the time of Genesis. So then you keep moving f- forward. All the ladies here grew up in taking uh, Bible studies, right? You've, you've heard about Ruth, right? How many of y'all have taken a study in Ruth, ladies? All right, a few of you. Ruth was written during the time of Judges. Judges was an incredibly dark period in the time of Israel. And what happens is, is along comes a little Moabite woman, a foreigner named Ruth. And God uses her and her story to um, further his promises. And when you open up the book of Matthew and look at Matthew chapter 1, what do you see but her name? It's because during this dark time when Israel is unfaithful, God remains faithful. And so Judges is a dark shadow and Ruth is this small light of hope of a God who's faithful to his promises and what is to come. And so then you get to 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and the book of Psalms, which many of us are familiar with, many of them are written by David. Well, David's story is told in 2 Samuel. So that's why you see Psalms underneath 2 Samuel. So you see how the, the book is in, the books of the Old Testament, Testament are integrated with one another, how they fit? The, the poetical and prophetical books, they fit within this time period, which is told. Okay? Now, I want to get to the 10 periods of the Old Testament story. I told you how many Old Testament, how many historical books are there in the Old Testament? 17. Of those 17, how many primary historical books? 11. Those 11 books, if you sat down and read those tonight, all 11, you would read a story that could be broken up into 10 chapters. Everybody follow me on this, okay? If you were to take the 11 primary historical books and read them to understand the story, you could break that story up into 10 periods or chapters. And that, those chapters are these. 
All right? So in order for you to remember this, because we're going to go over this over and over again, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to put your stuff down and stand up. All right? Come on. Got to be, you got to participate in order to win. Okay? There are 10 periods in the 11 books that are told, told, there's 10 periods or 10 chapters, okay? The first one is creation. So what I want you to do is just take your arms, right? Kind of nudge your neighbor, make sure they're awake, right? And you are creating the world. There's the big globe right there in all the universe, creation, all right? That's right, creation. And then after that is patriarchs. So when I think of a patriarch, that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, I think of these men who lived well over 100 years, and I think they're old men. And when they lived over 100 years, you got a big old beard, you're wise. So you touch your beard when you offer advice to your kids, okay? So those are the patriarchs. So creation, patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And then the patriarchs, if you know a little bit of the story, the last one's Joseph, who's betrayed by his brothers, finds himself in Egypt, Pharaoh then enslaves God's people. God raises up a man named Moses. And then little kids sing about little Moses going to Pharaoh saying, oh, oh, let my people go. Oh, 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 right, right. Okay. So that's the Exodus. You're marching out, right? You're leaving the country of Egypt. So creation, patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Moses now leads us out. This is the Exodus. Problem is the people who experienced or witnessed all the incredible plagues and were freed from bondage in Egypt, they're freed from slavery, they get to the land of promise that God promised Abraham. He has given them food. He's given them water through the wilderness. He's miraculously provided. He's led them by a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Despite all of that provision, they get there, they spy out the land, this promised land. And what ends up happening is the people become afraid, and so they rebel. And God says, for every day you spied out the promised land, but yet because you didn't have faith, you will now wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So guess what we do? We turn around, all right? You just turn around. You're going nowhere fast, right? That's what happened. So you've got creation, patriarchs, exodus. Come on. If you don't turn around, you're not playing, you can't win. All right, come on. Wandering. Then God raises up a series of judges, all right? Now, we think judges like this, so this is the next hand motion, judges. We think of conquest, thank you. That's during the book of Judges. All right, conquest, okay? And we think, why did I just do that? I just did that. Yeah, I don't know why I just did that. All right, so, sorry, wanderings. Let's back up a little bit. They, this generation, okay, that wandered, there's two spies, Joshua and Caleb, we mentioned them earlier, of the old generation, actually, okay? And those two spies were faithful and said, hey, guys, don't be afraid. We can do this. Everyone else rebelled. God said those two spies, those, those two people right there who believe we can do this, I'm going to allow them to enter into the promised land, okay? And Joshua, indeed, is the one who goes in, okay, and overthrows the inhabitants of the land. So I got it wrong. It's conquest goes up like this. So get up your dukes, okay? And the unfortunate thing is, is that the people then do rebel, 
okay? And it, after Joshua's death, and God raises up a series of judges. So you can do it like this, okay? Now, we think, you know, like a gavel right here, we're thinking like, well, what's intimidating about a guy who's in a black robe and he's got a gavel? Well, I do this so you remember judges, but really think Braveheart, okay? That's a judge. It's Samson, it's Gideon, okay? It's those men who God uses both spiritually and militarily to drive out the inhabitants. But it's a dark period in which there's seven cycles of sin and the people just continue to rebel and things get worse. So let's start over. Creation, patriarchs, exodus, wandering, conquest, judges. Now, this is important. The people don't want to be under God's rule. They want to be like all the other nations of the earth. So they cry out for a king. And God says, you don't need a king. I'm going to be your king. And they go, no, no, we want a king like all the nations of the earth. So they choose a king, and that king's name is Saul. And they choose him because he's strong, good-looking, and he spoke well on CNN. Okay? So they chose him, truly, right? But he wasn't God's choice. So that's kingdom. So you put your, make your crown, kingdom, Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. Solomon dies. The kingdom splits in two. There are 19 kings in the north, 20 kings in the south. Warning, warning, warning. This isn't going well. This isn't going well. Eventually, God brings judgment on the people, and then they go into exile. So you put your hands behind your back. Now you're arrested, all right? And now you're taken into captivity, 70 years of captivity, into Babylon, all right? You ever heard of Nebuchadnezzar or Daniel in the lion's den? That's where all this takes place, okay? So here we go, creation, patriarchs, exodus, wandering, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile. Here's the good news. Even when we're faithless, God is faithful. And so he allows the people to return. So we cheer because now we get to go home to the promised land. So we cheer. Yay, we're home. All right. Now we're home. And then you have 400 years of silence. That ends the Old Testament story. And from Malachi to Matthew, there's 400 years of silence. That doesn't mean nothing happened. A lot happened, which we'll talk about. A lot happened between Malachi and Matthew, but God did not speak prophetically. It's in between here that you see the rise of Alexander the, the Great. You see Greece and its influence, okay? And then comes one, a prophet, who comes in the name of the Lord, declaring that the Son of God has come, and it's John the Baptist, right? And that's where the story picks up with Jesus, so God hadn't spoken for 400 years, and then you hear John's voice, the one in the wilderness. So let's do it one more time. Creation, patriarchs, exodus, wandering, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, silence. All right, have a seat. Well done. All right. Now, we're going to do that several times, so just don't be embarrassed. It's just it's refreshing, all right? Now, the reason why I do that is because what's happening is is we're going to look in. We're going to take a telescopic view, and we're going to look at stories, okay? And when we look at the stories, you're going to have to remind yourself, how does this story fit within the whole? I've got this puzzle piece, but where is it within these 10 periods? 
Okay? So, let me just review real quick. Creation. Creation. This is the story, Genesis 1. Some of you all just throw out there, this is bonus. Genesis 1. God creates the world. He speaks it into existence in six days, and he rests on the seventh. Then in Genesis 2, if you've read it before, you may say, hey, why are there two creation accounts? Answer, there's not two creation accounts. Genesis 2 elaborates on the sixth day. Genesis 1, when you read it in Hebrew, speaks of Elohim, which is the majestic name of God. That God, whatever he chooses to do, whatever he pleases, whenever he says, it comes about. In Genesis 2, it doesn't use the name Elohim anymore for the Lord. It uses Yahweh, which is the covenant-keeping relational name of God. And so we see in Genesis 1 that God is powerful and sovereign. And in Genesis 2, we see that this God is also personal and intimate. And he's made us in his image, and he desires to have a relationship with us. But in Genesis 3, we rebel against God. God has given, he's created us to be innocent, not perfect, we're innocent. And in order to have a relationship with us, there has to be freedom. There has to be choice. And he has told us the way in which we can live and be rightly related to one another and unashamed and rightly related to him. But what ends up happening is, is that Adam and Eve, you and me, we rebel. We sin against God. We don't believe he's good. We don't believe he has our best interests in mind. So we turn our backs against him. But the good news is Genesis 3.15, which is the first glimpse of the gospel, God promises that there will be one, a rescuer, who's going to destroy the head of the serpent. And it's a glimpse, again, a shadow of what is going to come in the New Testament when Jesus arrives. That's why we celebrate Good Friday tomorrow of what happened on that cross. And then again on Sunday, the resurrection. It's all mounting up. It's all one story. So God, though, is in the business of bringing a faithless people back into a relationship with himself. Okay? So that's the creation story. That's the fall. He chooses a man named Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to promise you three things, land, children, and I'm going to bless you. Okay? And so it's from that covenant, which is found in Genesis chapter 12, is known as the Abrahamic covenant, upon which All of scripture is built. So creation, patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Exodus, wanderings, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, silence. We're going to add to that as we go along. I'm seeing my time and I've got to hurry. All right. Here's the timeline. People ask this all the time. Hey, give me a timeline. Just think of it like this. Abraham is 2,000 years before Christ. Moses, 1,500 years. And David, about 1,000 years. Okay, so Abraham, this time we're talking about in the book of Genesis, the patriarchs, it's about 2,000 years before Christ was born. Okay, you can see some other periods here that I've listed for you. We won't go over every slide. It's just too much detail. But the the Bible, or the uh, story... Um, goes along, and the nation of Israel is going to divide into two, and that happens in 931. Israel, the northern kingdom, was conquered, and then Judah is conquered. This will all make sense as we tell the story. What I want to do now is I want to look at these primary historical books, okay? So we have how many primary historical books? 
11, 11 primary historical books. So I told you, if I can teach you 11 primary historical books, you're going to know the story. It doesn't matter about all the other books. It just adds color, okay? So I'm picking back up where I was in Genesis, right? Genesis is easy to remember. It's easy to outline. There's a great quote here that speaks about how Genesis contains all the major themes of the Bible. You can read it on your own, all right? I'm push for time. All right. <laughs> We've got four events and four people. That's how you remember Genesis. There's a key word and a short outline for every book I'm going to give you. Gang, listen to me. I've got four kids at home from first grade to eighth grade. My kids have this in their head. You can do this. Don't be intimidated by the Bible. It was written for you. It was meant to be understood. Okay? I'm just telling you. Nothing drives me more crazy than when people say, well, I don't understand the Bible. I don't understand the Bible. I'm like, let me help you. Because it's the greatest gift. It's the greatest gift given to us to help us understand the mind of God. So not just that you become a smarter sinner, but so that you know the love of God. And I'm dead serious. Have you ever been around people? It's like they just want to learn the Bible so they become smarter sinners. That's not the goal. Okay? The goal is so that you can know the mind of God, know his love for you, and have a biblical worldview so that you can know him and reflect him. That's the goal. So I'm not trying to fill your mind so you can win the next Bible challenge. I'm helping you so you see the story. That, that the Bible's true. The story is true. That Easter's true. Amen? All right. So the story starts in Genesis. If you don't understand your Old Testament, you'll never understand your new like you're supposed to. I used to have an old fuzzy TV in my room way back before there was even cable, right? And I got like four, five, or yeah, four, five, eight, and 11, I think, were the four channels. I don't even know if I had four at that point. All right. It, 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 you know, rabbit ears, you know, you're just desperate to try to get anything to come in, right? And, and it's just a black and white TV with all the dots and everything. That's how so many of us read the, the New Testament. And what I'm telling you, man, is you can read it in HD color, but you got to go back to Genesis, okay? Because it's all one book. There's one conductor, right? He's, he's, he's helping us. He wants us to hear the whole symphony. So you've got four events, creation, which I just told you about, all right? Fall, which was known as the fall, Adam and Eve rebel against God, and then you've got flood. This is a story of judgment in which God um, rains judgment on the earth. He floods the earth, but he picks one man in his family. And that story, too, is a picture of what ultimately Christ is going to do for us. God made provision in the flood of judgment through the ark. And one day, although he said he's never going to flood the earth again, one day he's going to come and judge the earth. And we were not going to trust in an ark to save us. We're going to trust in the cross. Every story is pointing to Christ. And then you have the Tower of Babel, where the people choose not to multiply and spread out, okay? They choose to make a name for themselves. They literally gather and think, hey, we can maybe make a tower and make our way to God. We can be good enough. We'll make a name for ourselves, the Bible says. And God looked at them and said, this is not good. It's the height of apostasy and rebellion. And this becomes symbolic. Remember this. The last week, my friend Bobby Cry is going to get up here, and you're going you're to want to know this because everybody wants to know. Tell me about Revelation. Tell me about Revelation. Okay? And he's going to spend a lot of time talking to you about Revelation. 
but you can never understand. Anybody comes to me and goes, hey, I want to know about Revelation. Okay, great. Do you know about the Abrahamic covenant? I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, well, we got to go back to Genesis. Okay? That's why Revelation is so hard to understand. Right here, Babylon, Babel becomes symbolic as this world power that's going to rebel against God. Okay, it's going to come back. And it starts right here in this little form right here. All the major themes of Scripture are found right here in Genesis. It's the Tower of Babel. Well, man, in his pride, thinks, I don't need God. I'll make my way to God. And then God disperses man. But God, again, who's good, grabs one man, Abraham, a man named actually Abram at the time, from Ur. And he says, Abraham, Abram, I'm going to change your name to Abraham. And I promise you three things, and this is one of the most important things. You've been asleep. Now it's time to focus. One of the most important things you'll know about your Bible. He promises him in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 and 15, he says to him, hey, I am going to choose you, and I'm going to give you a land. This is what's known as the promised land. This gang is what people are fighting over in the Middle East today, over who has the rights to this land goes all the way back to Genesis. Abraham, I promise you land, the promised land. This land, this geography, it's been referred to as Canaan. It's been referred to as the Holy Land, Palestine, Israel. Okay? It, I mean, it's amazing how, how many times this, this land's shifted world powers and people have been in there. Okay? Anyway, focus. Okay, so land, many descendants. Okay, the Bible uses the word seed. Okay, uh, children, he's going to give you many children. This is the Jewish people. This is the Hebrew people. And then he promises them blessing that from Abraham is going to come one who's going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Somebody open up, if you have your Bible, open up Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. All right, Matthew 1, verse 1. What does it say? Come on, somebody, I can't hear you. The genealogy, what? There you go. And then you see a bunch of names. And then what do you do? You skip to where all the names are over, right? And then you go to the story. I did it for decades. I did it for decades. And guess what you're missing right there in verse 1? You are missing an incredible, incredible, incredible prophecy coming true. Matthew is a gospel written to the Jews, the people looking for the Messiah, the people who are the descendants of Abraham. And Matthew wants all the Jewish people to know that Jesus Christ is the one whom the Jewish people have long anticipated, his birth, his arrival. And Matthew 1.1 is saying God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. That's what Matthew 1.1 is saying. And we're going to get to 2 Samuel later on, which is known as the Davidic covenant, and God's going to be more specific. It's not just going to come from Abraham. 
the promised son is going to come from David. And that's why Jesus is known as the son of David. And God, what he's doing through time is just revealing more and more of what's going to come about this expected one. And it all comes back to this promise in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham, who's the first patriarch. Abraham and then Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. God starts over with Abraham and says, I'm, gonna, I'm on a rescue mission. I'm going to redeem all of humanity. It starts with you, Abraham. Okay? Changes his name, Abram, to Abraham. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. Okay? And we all know what circumcision is. Why is that? It's because God is saying, hey, through you, Abraham, you're going to be a people who are set apart. And it's through you who's going to come one. Who's that one? The second Adam. Sin entered into the world, Romans 5, through one man, Abraham. And sin is going to be dealt with through one man, Jesus Christ. Okay? It all goes back to Abraham. Abraham has Isaac. He is the son of promise. It makes no sense, but God says to Abraham, take your son and offer him as a sacrifice. You remember this? Anybody remember this story? Okay. Abraham goes up there and is about to kill his son and sacrifice him because that's what God told him to do, even though he may not have understood. This is the child of promise. This is the one through Abraham is going to come, the one of promise. And when he gets up to do this, what happens? But God stops him and goes, no, 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 Abraham. No. There's a ram caught in the thicket over there. Go get that. And what do you see immediately all the way in Genesis, but a picture of substitution? That there is a substitute. Gang, that's what Jesus did on the cross for us. He took our place. He was our substitute so that we didn't have to bear the wrath of God. But see, the difference is, is where Abraham stopped short, God followed through. And he sacrificed his son and blood was spilt. Why? To reconcile us back to himself. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God and God changes his name to Israel. One who strives with God. That's what that literally means. One who strives with God. Now, Jacob, that's where the name Israel comes from. The nation of Israel, Jacob has 12 sons. The 12 tribes of Israel are named after Jacob's 12 sons. Everybody follow me on this? Four events, four people. Four people are known as patriarchs, the fathers of the Hebrew faith. You have Abraham. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of those 12 sons is Joseph. You've seen the, the, the uh, musical, right? Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat, right? That's the story. Right? Now, it wasn't technicolor, but the, it says it was, it was a robe that was given to Joseph by Jacob because he was his favorite son. Well, I don't know about you. I've got two other, two other brothers. I'm the youngest. I am the favorite. And, and they don't like me because of that, but that's okay. They all know it's true, but I'm the favorite. And when you are the favorite, you're kind of picked on by the older brothers. Well, Joseph was left for dead by his brothers because they hated the fact that Jacob showed so much favor to him. Well, one of the brothers says, hey, let's not kill him. Let's profit off of him. So they sell him to a bunch of nomads who are on their way down to Egypt. 
And God, in his providence, crazy story, takes this young man, right, and raises him up into a position of prominence within the nation of Egypt. Well, there's a famine back home with all of his brothers who betrayed him. They need food. God has taken Joseph and raised him up to second in command of Pharaoh because of God's favor. And guess what happens? The very brothers that betrayed Joseph, they come looking for food. and They go, I know what we'll do. We'll go to Egypt. And they bow before Joseph. And Joseph recognizes him. And there's reconciliation. And Joseph says, come to Egypt and I'll care for you. And so Jacob is reunited with the son he thought was dead. Joseph is reunited with his brothers. And now the Hebrew people are in Egypt. Joseph is in in a position of prominence. The people are cared for. The famine is um, doesn't impact them because of Joseph's wisdom and the favor of God. And so you've got now, that's the whole story of Genesis. That's four events, four people in the key words beginnings. Okay. Now, Moses wrote the book. It has a universal focus, one through 11, chapters one through 11. But then it has that national focus, 12 through 50, which I talked to you about, which is with Abraham. The theme is promise. You see Christ in the book of Genesis in several places. I told you one with Abraham offering um, Isaac. The key chapter is chapter 12 because that's where the Abrahamic covenant is. In Genesis 15, 6, now I just got to show you this. We're going to, I don't know how, it's going to be a miracle if I can be done by 8.30. But here we go, okay? In Genesis 15, 6, this is so great, guys. You just got to watch this. In Genesis 15, 6, it says when God promises Abraham the Abrahamic covenant, it says, and Abraham believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Okay? Have you ever heard that saying before? And God reckoned it him as righteous. In other words, God counted Abraham as righteous because of his faith. When you get to Romans 1 through 3, you learn that all of us are sinful people. We've rebelled against God and we need a Savior. In 321, since we can't do anything to merit God's favor, Paul says, hey, what are we going to do? How can we be saved? And he goes, we're saved by justification by faith. It's a loaded theological term, which means we're declared righteous by God, not because of anything we've done, but because of faith in what God has done for us through Jesus on the cross. And then in Romans chapter four, he picks up on Genesis 15, six, quotes it and says, hey gang, all along, Old Testament, New Testament, throughout time, every person is saved on the basis of faith. People ask me this all the time. How are people in the Old Testament saved before Christ? Answer, by grace through faith. Read Romans 4. We see in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 and 8, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What's that a quote of? Genesis 15, 6. Know then that as those of faith who are sons of Abraham, 
And the scripture, look at this, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, declare them righteous, that's you and me, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Do you see that? We're all the way in the New Testament now, and Paul's saying, hey, you got to understand, the gospel's not new with the New Testament. The gospel was preached to Abraham. God wasn't up in heaven going, you know what I think I'll do right now? I think maybe I'll send Jesus. Maybe that's what I'll do. No, no, no. There's a divine plan and gang. We're living in it right now. That's what you have to understand. It's not like we're, we're separated from the, the prophecy of Scripture. There is still yet much to come. And when we look at God's track record and understand throughout history and throughout time, he is faithful to his promises. Okay, we'll get to that more later on. Here is a picture. I saw this picture. It's a Rembrandt picture. I saw this actually. It's in, uh, of all places, St. Petersburg, Russia. And um, it is Rembrandt's drawing or painting of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. It's just incredible. We have Isaac. I mean, you're just thinking, what would that have been like? And you have Abraham covering his eyes. And then you see the angel and you see the ram back there. But it's a picture, all right? What, why, why was Abraham able to do that? Read Hebrews 11 later on tonight. Short answer is because he believed God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. How about that? When you read Hebrews 11, it talks about Abraham's faith. Then go back and read the account of Abraham about to sacrifice Isaac. And what does he say to his servant? We will be back. We will be back. Now, where Abraham was sacrificed, or Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, that's the same site where Solomon built his temple. It's the same site where the temple is rebuilt. It's the same mountain gang where Christ was crucified. Right there. Do you know what sits there today? The Temple Mount. That's right. A Muslim holy site. The Bible says that there's going to be a day when the temple is actually going to be rebuilt. It says there's going to be a day when Christ is going to come down from the Mount of Olives and walk through that gate and go right up there. I'm just telling you. Ground zero for all of Scripture and history and current world events is right there. And what is right there? Where Abraham offered Isaac and where Christ was crucified. It's all right there. Not making it up. So you've got now God's people in Egypt. But where are they supposed to be? They're supposed to be in the land of promise, in Israel. Okay? But what happens when we read the book of Exodus is, is that in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, a new Pharaoh arose who did not remember Joseph. So there's a succession of generations Joseph and his family have passed away, and now you've got a new Pharaoh who arises, and he is threatened by the number of Jewish people, the Hebrew people. And he goes, hey, there are so many, they're going to have the power to overthrow us. 
So I've got an idea. Let's profit off of them. So he enslaves them. This is where the people cry out to God. God, you promised Abraham. And God, it says, remembers his, he hears their cry. It's a great verse. You probably heard it quoted before. God hears his people's cry and he remembers his promise to Abraham. And what a great promise. When we cry out to God, God hears us. And they were a people bound in captivity. They cried out to God. God heard them. And what, he did, what did he do? But he raised up a deliverer. And he redeemed his people. There's a series of 10 plagues. Okay, The 10th plague being when the death angel passed over the homes of the people who sacrificed the lamb and put the blood on the door. What is that a picture of? Of what God did for us through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross on what Jewish religious holiday? Passover. And that is why Jesus is known as our Passover lamb. It's amazing, guys. This Bible is all one book. Jesus didn't die on just some random day. No, God appointed for him to die on the feast of Passover. He is our Passover lamb. And so just like, in, so back in Exodus, what ends up happening is, is that the people are enslaved. They cry out. God sends, raises up Moses to deliver. Moses says, I can't, 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 can't do this. Okay, I stutter. God gives him Aaron. The two go before Pharaoh. Let my people go. He says, no, it happens 10 times. Passover. Hey, man, all bets are off. Get out of here. They flee. They get to the Red Sea. Oh, no, now we're in trouble. God opens the Red Sea and the people cross miraculously on dry ground. And then the Pharaoh's people do the dead man float. Okay, if you've helped in children's ministry, you know what I'm talking about. All right. So now what has God done? God has freed his people from Egypt in the oppression of the Egyptians. Moses is now leading them, but now he's got to set them apart. So he gives them the law, the Mosaic law. So the book of Exodus is broken up into two parts. You have redemption. He redeems them. He buys their freedom. You with me? Everybody with me? All right. Then he says, Exodus 19, verse 6, write it down. That's the key verse. Get there. Exodus 19, verse 6, God says, hey, you are to be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, don't think Catholicism, right? Like priests, like with the little neck thing. No, no. A priest is somebody who intercedes. So the nation of Israel is going to be set apart from all the other nations of the earth by God, and he's going to give them his law to instruct their hearts on how they are to follow him. Okay? The book of the law is going now to inform the people two purposes, not only just to help them understand how to walk with God, but it's going to teach them about the character of God. You with me on this? Moses goes up Mount Sinai. He receives the law. Okay? This is Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So what has God done? God has started a rescue plan that began way back after Adam and Eve rebelled. He chose Abraham. He started with that rescue plan and said, hey, it's going to come from you. And he's been faithful in the children of promise and his people, the Hebrew people. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of those 12 sons is Joseph. Joseph finds himself in Egypt. The people are oppressed. I'm sorry. Joseph finds himself in Egypt. God raises him up. Joseph eventually dies. The people are oppressed. They cry out for help. God raises up Moses. He delivers them. Now he says, hey, man, you're my people. Now I'm going to teach you who I am and what my ways are, how to follow me. So the the purpose of the law is both both revelatory and regulatory. What do I mean by that? (coughs) I mean that it reveals the character of God, revelatory, and it's regulatory. It shows them how they are to live as a redeemed people. Okay? He wants to set them apart. Why? So that when all the other nations of the earth look to the Jewish people, they are going to say, hey, listen, it's not us. You need to understand, you have, you're a polytheistic people. There aren't multiple gods. There's one God. His name is Yahweh, and he wants a relationship with you. Much like today. Matthew chapter 5, what does Jesus say about you and me? God's not working through the nation anymore. He's working through the church. And the church is supposed to be salt and light. And people are to look at you and me and go, what is different about you? Your faith, your joy, your peace, the way you reconcile, handle conflict, spend your money, live in purity, love people, care, give sacrificially. What is it about you? And we're going to go, hey, well, it has nothing to do with me. God has changed my heart. I was once in darkness. I was once in bondage. Now I've been set free. And this is the same thing, the mission that God had for his people back in Exodus, where they were to be a kingdom of priests, his representatives on earth. What is it that's different about you? Well, it's nothing with me. I've been set apart. I've been set free. The, the law is really, it's broken up into three parts, Okay. Um, just, you know, you can't find moral in your Bible, okay, or civil or ceremonial. But when people read the, the law in Exodus and Leviticus, this is what they'll find. They'll, they'll, they'll read it all and they'll go, Hey, let's, we can group this up in these three parts. You have the, the moral aspect of the law, which is repeated again in the new Testament. That's, that's timeless. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. But then there's the civil aspect of the law where God is working through a particular people, a nation, and he's saying, hey, listen, you are going to be set apart, and everything about you is going to be different. Your diet, your worship, your clothes, your marriage, your family, your work, everything's different. Okay? And so there's a civil aspect. How, uh, how do we get along with each other? How do we do business with each other? as God's people. And then there's a ceremonial aspect. Now, how are we to relate to God? How are we to worship him? So God lays all this out for them so they could be his people. Okay. Now people always, they hear about the law and they always assume, well, the law is bad. The law is bad. We're not saved by the law. No, no, no. The law is good. Okay. And you see that repeated time and time again in the New Testament. Romans 7 says it several times. First Timothy 1 says it. The law is holy. The law is good. 
right? You get to Galatians 3, Paul says the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Understand this. The law is not bad. The law reveals to us the nature and character of God and our need for a Savior. So when we try to follow the law, we recognize the law is pointing us to someone who is perfect. We are not perfect, and we need a Savior. We need someone to redeem us. God is great. God is good. He is perfect, and we are not. That's the first thing you've got to understand before having a relationship with Jesus Christ and being reconciled to God, that I am in need. And that's the law, what the law revealed. It was a mirror to show you your need. Notice that Jesus didn't say the law was bad. He said he came to fulfill the law. And that's what he did for us. God not only gave them the law, but he dwelt amongst them. Okay? And there was a tabernacle. So now you've got this people who've been set free, and they are going to go from Egypt to the land that was promised to who? Abraham. Okay? And so he's going to lead them by a pillar of fire by day, a pillar of fire, I'm sorry, pillar, a cloud by day and fire by night. And he is going to tabernacle amongst them. He is going to live within the center of their camp. And all 12 tribes, sons of Jacob, are going to be camped around that tabernacle. You with me on this? Okay. So when you get to John chapter 1, And it says that Jesus tabernacled with us. It's, hey guys, God incarnate is, is Christ is born. God incarnate is with us. He's tabernacled with us. It's relating back to what? This portion of the Old Testament showing us who Jesus is. Okay? He wants to be their God and he wants them to be their people. Now, when you actually go to Israel, if you've ever been, it's, it's just awesome. You can actually go to this place in southern Israel where they have recreated this tabernacle. This was what is, was moved about within the camp. The Levites were in charge of this. Okay? And when you walk in to the, this tabernacle, you see this is the altar right there where sacrifice is made. All right? And then you have this little laver right there where you'd wash. Okay? You see it right there? Right Right there? Okay, it's like a little fountain. So you have sacrifice here. You have washing and cleansing here. Okay, with me on this? Then you walk into that tent, and then you've got the table of showbread. God provided manna for the people while they were in the wilderness. Okay? And then you have this lampstand on the other side. You have an altar of incense. And then you walk in the Holy of Holies, and here's the Ark of the Covenant. And when you open up the Ark of the Covenant, you have Aaron's rod that blooms. You have the Ten Commandments. You have manna. Those are all symbolic. Okay? And what's God doing throughout this whole thing is he's teaching his people. He's using symbols. He's using all of this to teach his people who he is, how they are to relate to him, and look at the New Testament significance of this. Okay? You had that, that altar. Well, how are we to relate to God? There first must be sacrifice. 
And that happens through the atonement of Christ. Once there is sacrifice that's made and there's, there's a labor used for what? For cleansing, which is what happens to us once you trust it in the sacrifice of Christ, there's a cleansing. You have the table of showbread, which is spiritual sustenance. What did Christ say he was? I am the what? The bread of life. Seven I am statements in the book of John. And what does he say? I'm the bread of life. What's he pointing to? This. What does he say with the lampstand? I am the what? Light of the world. You have this altar of incense, okay, which represents prayer. You have the ark, okay, which represents access to God. When Christ died, the temple is torn, right, from top to bottom. You have the mercy seat. Gang, I can't make all this up. The Bible is so rich. And you cannot appreciate and understand the story of the new if you don't understand the story of the old. You with me on this? So what's God doing? He's telling us that all of history has not happened by accident. He's got a plan. So the key word for Genesis is beginnings. Four events, four people. Creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel. Four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Then you've got Joseph with all of his uh, brothers and family in Egypt. Eventually they're forgotten. God raises up, or I mean, uh, Pharaoh rises up and oppresses them, and God raises up a deliverer named Moses who frees them through the 10 plagues, eventually lets them go up to Passover. They cross the Red Sea. Now he's going to reveal himself to them. So you have redemption, revelation. That's Exodus, okay? Genesis beginnings, Exodus escape. So now we've done creation, patriarchs, Exodus. Everybody with me? Leviticus is not a primary historical book. I put it in your notes just so you can go back and look at what it, what it is. But it's an expansion on the law, and it emphasizes the holiness of God. Everybody with me on that? So I told you the law is broken up in the moral, civil, and ceremonial. Okay, Leviticus is going to help us better understand God's requirement of the tabernacle and of his priests and how they're to relate to him. Okay, when you get to the book of Hebrews, right, in your New Testament, it's going to emphasize that Jesus Christ is our perfect high priest. That he has made one sacrifice once for all, and there's no need for sacrifice again. Hebrews cannot be understood without an understanding of Leviticus. It emphasizes the holiness of God. That word is repeated 92 times. Holy, 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 holy. 92 times. So if it's repeated three times by God, that's important. If it's repeated 92 times, you've got a theme. All right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Now you get to numbers. The key word for numbers is wandering. Okay? So that's when we do this. Remember that? All right, some of you turned around and some of you didn't. So you don't remember because you didn't turn around. All right, so you get to numbers and that's not a real creative way to title a book. Why in the world would it be called numbers? Well, it's because it starts with a counting of the Exodus generation. Okay, they take a census. All those who left Exodus, left Exodus, who left Egypt, okay, in the book of Exodus. So, there's a counting at the beginning, and then there's a counting of the new generation or the Exodus 
generation's kids at the end of Numbers. Why? What happens? Well, here's the outline. The old generation, the Exodus generation, they are on their way to the promised land, being led by who? Moses. They get there, and Mo decides, hey, listen, we're going to send in spies, one spy from each tribe. They go in to the promised land, and then they come out and they go, that land is just like God said it would be. It is flowing with milk and honey which is just an illustrative way to say, hey, it is a land of abundance, okay? However, there are giants in the land. The cities are well fortified. We've got nothing. We are in trouble. So the people are like, oh, well, great, okay? God, you brought us all the way out here. Moses, what good are you? I knew we should have stayed in Egypt, Okay, and they rebel against God, and they lose faith. Two spies, Joshua and Caleb, rise up and go, hey, guys, quiet down. Don't you remember what God's done for us? Don't you remember how he's provided manna for us throughout the wilderness, how he's provided water in the middle of a desert? Don't you remember what happened back in Egypt? He's going to take those giants. He's going to wipe them out. We're good. Well, the people listen to the majority, not the minority. Okay? The two make a stand, and God goes, those two right there, Joshua and Caleb, you two, you're going to go into the promised land. Everybody else, if you are uh, 21 years old or older, you're going to, you are never going to see the promised land. And so there's this rebellion, and now for every day they spied out the promised land, which is 40 days, they now are going to wander for a year. So that's 40 years of wandering. Basically, to, for, for the Exodus generation to die out. Okay? So you have old generation, this tragic transition which happens, and then you've got a new generation. Now, Where do you see Christ in the book of Numbers? Numbers 21, 4 through 9. Because the people are grumbling and complaining, right? God, this is a crazy story. Read this to your kids at night. They won't go to sleep. Okay, so they hear, God hears all the people crying. So what does he do? He sends snakes with venom, okay? And just boom, they're just boom. They're bitter. They have, they're, 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 they're complaining is like poison, and God goes, I'll show you poison, okay? And, and now they're being bit. And then God, though, in his mercy and his grace, he says, hey, Moses, I want you to take a bronze serpent and I want you to lift it up. And everyone who looks to the serpent, everyone who trusts in the serpent for relief and listens to me, they're going to be healed. Story sound familiar to you? Anybody ever heard this story? Couple. How many of you ever heard John 3.16 before? How many? Raise your hand. You ever heard John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Anybody ever read that? Come on. Play along. Everybody play home. All right. Somebody tell me what John 3.15 says. Look it up. Look it up, look it up, look it up. 
Okay, uh, go 13 through 15 then. 13 through 17, I'm sorry. There you go. Within the context of the verse, we all know by heart and have quoted and have seen on that dude always standing on the football field, right? John three sixteen. after every touchdown. Right there, what does Jesus say to Nicodemus? What does he quote? Numbers chapter 21. Hey, just as the serpent was lifted up, so too will the Son of Man be lifted up. And everyone who believes in him shall have eternal life. It's all one book, gang. It's not a bunch of pieces. It's all one book. So the people complain. They wander. They grumble. You got these slides. Come on. Up. Giving it away. So here's the bad news. Moses is after all of that in his faithfulness. Okay. God tells him one day, Moses, speak to the rock and water will flow out. You know what Moses did? He struck it. He took his staff and he struck the rock. Okay, what does 1 Corinthians tell us? That rock is what? The rock is Christ. That's what Paul picks up on. Okay, and so you read this story and all that Moses has done in a fit of anger or in a desire of pride to show his authority, he strikes the rock rather than speaks. And God goes, that right there is not treating what I declare holy as holy, and you will not enter into the promised land. However, you'll have an opportunity to see it. I mean, you think about that. Whew. Yeah, that's rough. Okay? And so, gang, just like the old generation, when they found out, when God said, hey, gang, sorry, you're not going in, do you know what they ended up doing? Oh, we're so sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. We're good now. We're going to take them. And so they charge in the promised land and they get routed. And God goes, hey, I, I wasn't with you. And I told you I wasn't going with you. And right here, Moses, he strikes the rock. Listen, gang, we are saved by grace through faith. Absolutely. Absolutely. But there are terrible consequences to sin. And sometimes we lose opportunities and privileges. And it, it, this, is it. this is one of those times where you just read and it's just humbling. Here's Moses. It's just like David. We're going to get to Second Samuel. I mean, in David, the man after God's own heart, what he did, I mean, he loses a ton. But you go to Israel, you can stand on Mount Nebo, and here's what you'll see. You'll see this little thing where Moses stood, and you'll see this little plaque, and it basically shows you, hey, you look out that way, this is what you see. Jerusalem's over there, okay? Jericho's over there. Let me show you what it looks like on this cloudy day when I was there. That doesn't look like much to me. The land flowing with milk and honey. Right? You kind of look at it and go, that looks pretty desolate to me, you know? But that's the view from Mount Nebo. 
All right? We got three minutes. We're going to get through Deuteronomy. That's where I, exactly where I wanted to be. All right? It's going to be a partial miracle. Here we go. <laughs> so now you have a new generation. Okay? God has allowed the old generation to pass away in the wilderness. Joshua and Caleb have been raised up to lead the new generation. What are you going to have to do for the new generation? Think about it. What would you do? So they don't repeat the same mistakes. You've got you've to teach them the law. You've got to give them their history. You've got to tell them the mistakes their parents made. So that is what Deuteronomy is. It is not a primary historical book. It is a review of the law. Deuteronomy literally means second law, second nomos. Okay? You have three sermons. The first sermon, Moses says, hey, kids, listen up. This is your history. This is your past. This is where you've been. Then he tells them the law. This is the law your parents didn't listen to, that God has given to you. If you listen and obey, you will prosper. And then the third sermon is a call to obedience. Okay? So you've got this history that Moses tells the second generation. Here's where you've come from. Here's who you are. This is how God has called you out and all that he's done for you. Your parents, though, they didn't trust him. So here's the law. Obey it. Listen to it. And then he calls them to obedience. This is the locker room speech, the final sermon, where the coach gets in front of the boys and says, come on, you can do it, to motivate them. That's the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means review. All right? So, maybe we'll go back. There we go. So everybody stand up. 829, we're late in the plane. How about that? Here we go. Creation, patriarchs, four patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Creation, patriarchs, Exodus led by who? Moses out of what country? Egypt. What's next? Very good. Wandering. So you wander like this, right? What book are we in right now? Very good. Numbers. That's exactly right. Now we have... Conquest. You're going to learn about this next week. Joshua will lead them into the promised land. Okay? And they will be faithful. And Joshua's, he's a stud. You'll love Joshua. You have conquest. Put up your dukes. You're fighting for the land. The land promised to Abraham. Land, seed, and blessing. All right? Conquest. Judges. Kingdom. Exile. Return. Silence. Come here, my man. All right. This is Daniel Crawford. So Daniel is a good friend of mine. He happens to be one of the residents at, uh, here at Watermark. So he gets a heavy dose of teaching every week. And uh, he is going to lead you next week. I'm going to be gone. And uh, he's going to lead you from Joshua through what? Second Samuel? Second Samuel. Through Second Samuel. So that's right. So I gave him the hardest part, right? It's going to be great. So this is Daniel. Um, I want to introduce him. There are books we're selling over here. Gang, listen, we're not making money on these books. We don't want to make money on the books. We want to just sell them to you at our cost. It's called 30 Days to Understand the Bible. You don't have to get it, but it is 
the book to me that is the clearest, most simple, straightforward way to understand the story of the Bible. So I would encourage you to get one if you'd like or get it from Amazon. But as we make our way through, it'd be good just to take one chapter a day. They're short. I mean, a high school, a junior high kid could follow it. It really is that repetitive and that simple. And it will walk you through the story I just walked you through. Okay? Let me pray for us and I'll let you go. Lord in heaven, I thank you for the story of Scripture. I thank you that your word is truly inspired and how it points. Everything points to Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father, that tomorrow we get to stop and we get to celebrate Good Friday and what that means, that the Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. And I thank you that it doesn't just stop with Friday, but Sunday's coming and we get to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. And there's hope and there's life and there's peace for all of those who trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. See you all next week.